Good to be with you all uh, this morning. I must admit I've felt a great amount of anxiety about preaching today. Um, not because today is you know, the last uh, sermon I get to preach uh, at this church and the great privilege that that is, but because a couple of weeks ago I made a throwaway comment about uh, wearing board shorts, my pastel flowery board shorts, really to have a bit of a go at Phil because he always calls them my pyjama shorts. So if you remember a couple of weeks ago I joked that, oh well, I'll wear them for my last sermon because what's Phil going to do? He's going to sack me. I'm going anyway. doesn't matter. Uh, I have received a lot of pressure to wear these said shorts today. At 9am, there was men messaging each other to wear their board shorts today. I think about a dozen of them wore their best board shorts this morning. Uh, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. One, because I respect Phil too much. Two, because I've got lady legs, and uh, they're crooked lady legs, and you do not want to have my legs up here while I'm preaching. And three, what we're doing is an important thing, uh, coming to the Word of God. Uh, it's a privilege to be able to preach the Word of God. So I couldn't wear them, uh, kind of. Uh, I didn't want to uh, disappoint people who now think that I don't hold and keep to my promises. It's like I've got death threats almost through the week if you do not wear those board shorts. Uh, so I've got them on right here. <laughs> so just in case anyone, you know, uh, it's, it's really uncomfortable. <laughs> but I've fulfilled all righteousness. Uh, there we go. Let me, let me pray and we'll get on to far more, far more important things. Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you are the God who's revealed yourself to us, uh, that you've proclaimed your Son to us, and that we can know salvation through him. Help us this morning to understand this great chapter and help us to be changed and spurred on in light of it. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, it really is a great last chapter to have as a last sermon. It wasn't planned this way. Phil and I didn't sit down and think, hey, Acts 9, great chapter. Let's make it so you can preach that. Uh, it just worked out that way. And it could have just as easily been Ananias and Sapphira from chapter 5, if you remember that story, which I must admit would have been a very interesting last sermon. Uh, but such, this is such a great uh, chapter as a last sermon because there are two incredible things we see in this chapter. For one, this is what it's all about in the end, isn't it? Just, just think of what we see in chapter 9. If you strip back all the layers and riches of the scriptures, what do you see? You see a God who's mighty to save. You see our God who is gracious and merciful to save. And you see sinful people who desperately need to be saved. And that's what we see in this chapter. In this chapter, we see the, the work of a gracious God who softens the hardest of hearts and humbles the proudest of sinners to save him for God's glory. Uh, and whilst parts of what we'll see with Saul is unique, he, he's unique in many ways, even so, every follower of Jesus had God soften their hard heart. Every follower has been humbled of their proud sin. Every follower has been saved to live for God's glory. Uh, so it's an incredible chapter, and that's one of the first incredible things we see here. But the second incredible thing in this chapter is that God chooses Saul. Uh, Saul becomes, humanly speaking, one of the most prominent figures of all time. Uh, it's just fact. Uh, Saul, as you know, is the Apostle Paul. Uh, Saul, his Hebrew name, Paul, his Greek. Humanly speaking, he's one of the prominent figures of all history. He's changed the shape of our world. But spiritually speaking, even more so, he's God's instrument for the message about Jesus. If you pull out your Bible and look at the contents page and look under the New Testament, almost half of the New Testament, God uses Paul to write. God uses Paul to reveal to us. And in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is both saved and commissioned. 
It's a hugely significant chapter. So there are two things I want us to see in this chapter, that God is mighty to save, and also to see God's choosing of Saul, who is the Apostle Paul. So we're going to jump straight in because there's lots to cover. And uh, as we start, I want us to remember what we know about Saul so far. Uh, And this is point one on your outline, Saul before. To put it bluntly, Saul was a nasty piece of work. There's no other way to talk about him. Um, what we've got to do today is forget Acts chapter 9 for a moment. Don't, don't think we know what happens. Think of what you know of Saul so far. He's a nasty piece of work. What was he doing back in chapter 7? Do you remember the, the young men who were stoning Stephen to death? Do you remember what those young men did? They took off their coats and they laid them at the feet of Saul. And it's a horrible image because the reason they took off their coats was probably so it was easier to throw stones, but also they didn't want to get Stephen's blood as they stoned him on their garments. That's the picture. And they're putting them before Saul so they can go off and stone Stephen. And Saul is there leading the death of Stephen. He's their leader. And worse still, if you go back to chapter 8, verse 3, just flick back, chapter 8, verse 3, if you look there... It's Saul who's the chief persecutor of the church of Jesus. This is where persecution comes in all its fullness in Jerusalem for the first time. He was ravaging the church. And what he would do is enter house after house. So literally imagine knocking on the door, house after house. Are you a follower of Jesus? If I know you're a follower of Jesus, doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, possibly even a child, I will drag you out and put you in prison. And in that day, if you were put in prison, there's a good chance you would die in prison. That was Saul. He was obsessed. He was driven. He was devout. And when we get to chapter 9, Saul was so obsessed that he now turns to the other surrounding cities. So he's he's, uh, been upon Jerusalem. He's done his great persecution there. Now I'm going to go search them out from other places. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Look at how it starts. Chapter 9, verse 1. Let me read it. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus. Why? So that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, that's the way of Jesus, he might bring them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. And just so you get your geography straight, Damascus is 240 kilometers away from Jerusalem. So he's not going next door. He's obsessed. He's he's going to another main town. Damascus was one of the decapolis cities, one of the main ten cities. And it would take a week for him to walk there. He went all the way there. He was so driven because he wants to kill the cause of the way of Jesus. He wants to kill the cause of Jesus and his followers. And as we start chapter 9, it's so important that we grasp just how nasty a piece of work Saul is. Don't don't miss that as we read. Don't think Apostle Paul at this point. Think Saul. Saul hated Jesus, and he hated Jesus' followers literally to their deaths. And that's what makes what happens next incredible. See, look at verse 3. From verse 3. So there's, imagine Saul, you know, chest puffed out, walking towards Damascus. Verse 3, as he, Saul, traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And just as an aside, isn't it such a great comfort to see how Jesus here unites himself with the suffering of his people? 
Did you notice that? Saul is on his way to do what? To arrest the followers of Jesus, to arrest Christians, to persecute them. And yet Jesus says from the beginning, why are you persecuting me? To, to persecute them is to persecute me. I'm united with them in this suffering. But the first thing to say here is that this event, it's a real event. Uh, it's, it's, it's physical. It's a supernatural thing that happens. So don't, don't imagine Saul had a dream. Don't imagine Saul uh, in a trance or dehydrated that he saw this particular vision. That's not how it worked. A light literally flashed around Saul. He heard clearly a voice. Uh, the whole thing's so real and tangible that Saul is physically knocked to the ground. It's real. It's tangible. And when you picture that scene, what an appropriate position for Saul to be in. To be humbled, to be brought low on the ground as Jesus then speaks to him. Him cowardly on the ground. And I really want us to slow down at this point and put ourselves in the shoes of Saul. Just imagine you've been Saul. Imagine the rage you've had. Imagine how Saul would have felt then when the words came, Who are you, Lord? And the voice came back saying, I'm Jesus. Who, who am I, Lord? Who is the Lord? Who is your Lord? It's, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you've been persecuting. I'm the Lord. Uh, I remember when I was in early high school, my um, mum and my sister and I had come back from lunch at uh, Rockdale Plaza. I think it was just new at the time. And uh, as I got home, I had this deep sinking feeling. Uh, as I rem remembered that I'd left my retainer, you know, my, your plate uh, for your teeth, I'd left it on my lunch tray uh, back at Rockdale Plaza. And uh, I hadn't had the retainer for long. We were by no means a rich family. Uh, you know, we got by, but we had no extra means. Uh, I think my parents paid $400 for this thing, which was a lot of money for my family. It was a huge expense. And I, I remember standing at home as I'd got home recalling, hold on, what have I done? I wrapped up my plates in a napkin. And I put the napkin on the tray. And then after lunch, because you can't have the plate in while you're eating lunch, I went to the bin and wiped all of the contents of the tray into the bin. And as I record that, there were some very uh, not-so-choice words that came out of my mouth. Uh, I wasn't a Christian at the time. And I, I distinctly remember my mum and sister turning around looking at me thinking, why are you swearing your head off? What's the matter? What's happened? And I was horrified by what I'd done. Again, I knew what it cost my family. I knew that when my dad got home, I'd be in big trouble. Uh, somewhat disgustingly, we drove back to Rockdale Plaza, and I fetched my plates out of the food court bin. I went looking for it, and somehow I found it in a napkin. And I, I, I can't believe I found it, but I cleaned it twice a day, every day for a week before I dared stick it back in my mouth. It's disgusting. Um, but but you, know that, you know that sinking feeling? Like you feel it literally in your guts when, when something dawns upon you, when you've realized, oh, I've made a mistake. You know, I've got it wrong. That, that feeling you get, well, imagine Saul. Just imagine for a second. He's given himself to killing the followers of Jesus, to, to rebelling against all that Jesus stands for. And he hears the voice, who are you persecuting? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. I'm the one you hate so much. I'm the Lord and King of Stephen that you stoned, that you, that you approved the killing of. Just imagine how Saul would have thought at that point and that sinking feeling. He got it so wrong. Realizing that Jesus is King, He is Lord, He is the Son of God, and yet He'd spent His life to that point rebelling against Him those last few months of His life. 
You see, it's a sad reality that millions on the day of Jesus' return will have that exact same feeling. Jesus will come back and sadly millions will say, I got it wrong. He's Lord. He is God. He's the one and only God. You see, don't let that be you. If you are here and you do not have Jesus as your Lord and Saviour at this point, know that Jesus is Lord and Saviour and he is King and change. Turn to him. Don't be that person on the day of Jesus' return. That day will be too late. But what we have here is this incredible uh, picture of the grace and mercy of God that he would save Saul. That he would actually give the time and the chance for Saul to change and to turn and to repent and to pray for forgiveness. See, if you ever want an example of how salvation has nothing to do with you and nothing to do with me, nothing to do with, with our good works or good deeds or good intentions or good reputation, look at Saul. Nothing good at all. Humanly speaking, he was the least deserving of Jesus' mercy. He went from house to house and town to town. He would have, people would have opened their doors when Saul was at the door and their faces would have grown cold and pale. And Saul looked at the faces and saw the fear in their face and he still dragged them off to prison. No mercy for them at all because they were followers of Jesus. And yet Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. And yet God was pleased to save him. You see, part of what we learn at this point is that if Jesus can save and spare someone like Saul, he can save anyone in this room, regardless of what we have done. And he can save your hardened father, or your mother, or your sister, or your brother, or that friend who mocks, or the co-worker that every time you know, Christians come up, they roll their eyes and laugh. The devout atheist, God can save them all. So here's how uh, J.C. Ryle puts it. I had to obviously quote J.C. Ryle one more time. Uh, he, he says this. He says, There is nothing in Scripture, nothing in God, nothing in man's condition which warrants anyone in saying, I can never be converted. There lives not the man or woman on earth from whom it could be said their conversion is an impossibility. Anyone, however sinful and hardened, anyone may be converted. How? How can he say that so confidently? Well, he continues, conversion is a possible thing. Why? Because of the almighty power of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is as easy to him to create new hearts out of nothing as it was to create the world out of nothing. It's as easy for him to breathe spiritual life into a stony dead heart as it was to breathe life, natural life, into the clay of which Adam was formed. You see, our God is incredibly mighty to save even a wretch like Saul, even to humble the hardest of hearts like Saul. And don't we see Saul humbled at this point? And rightly so. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. So Jesus has spoken to him. Then verse 8, Then Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. And it's a huge contrast, isn't it? See, Saul would have walked towards Damascus with his chest out, puffed out, seeing so clearly his eyes were fixed. I'm getting those followers of Jesus. And now he's incredibly humbled. Now he's blind. Now he's being led by the hand like a, like a child. He's not eating. He's not drinking for three days. That's the shame of his sin. That's how low the Lord Jesus brings him. 
And if you look to verse 11, he's doing the only thing he could have done. Look at verse 11. What was he doing for those three days? He was praying. And we're not told what he was praying. We can only guess. But I suspect he's praying, forgive me, Lord Jesus. I got it so wrong. Lord, I don't even deserve your mercy. Perhaps he was praying for those uh, families that he'd thrown into prison who were Christians. Perhaps he was praying for Stephen's family, who now were without Stephen. We don't know for sure, but Saul was humbled and he was changed by Jesus. And what happens next in Acts chapter 9 is that we meet another man who, like Saul, was changed. And different to Saul, but nonetheless he was changed by Jesus. And we're up to point three now. Saul received. And uh, from uh, verse 10, we meet Ananias. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because there's Ananias and Sapphira back in chapter 5. But if you put two and two together, hopefully you realize it's not the same Ananias. Go back, read chapter 5, and you'll realize it's a different Ananias. Uh, And what Ananias does here is he receives Saul eventually. Uh, So look at verse 10, because the Lord in verse 10 calls to Ananias in a vision. And he says to him in verse 11, he says, Get up and go to the street called Straight." to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And uh, just as a really quick side point, please remember the Bible, real history, real places, uh, real people up on the screen there. That's Straight Street in Damascus, in Syria. If you want, you can go there. You can still see it. Remember the Bible, real people, real places, real events. But what Jesus does is he tells Ananias to go to Saul. Uh, And if you have a look at verse 13... If you look at verse 13, Ananias was reluctant to go. And I think, fair enough. You know, imagine what he said to Jesus. Uh, uh, hold on, Jesus. Haven't you heard that actually this guy called Saul is coming here to arrest me? And he's coming here to, to take my family. He's coming here to, to take those from my church, my fellow believers. Sorry, Jesus, do you, do you mean flee from him? Is that what you mean? Not, not go, to, go to him? Have, have, I, have I misheard you, Jesus? But look at what Jesus says in verse 15. And this is a very significant verse for a couple of reasons, so make sure you look at it. Verse 15, But the Lord Jesus said to Ananias, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And in this moment, as we read on, as we read here, we know that now the apostle Paul, or Saul as he's called here, has been commissioned. And has been appointed to be the apostle. And the reason Luke puts this here for us, the reason God records this for us to read, and with all the detail that he gives us, is so that we might know for sure that Jesus had appointed this man, Saul, uh, the apostle Paul. And he's the apostle, yes, to Israel, but especially to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And as you read on in the rest of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, with all the letters that Paul wrote, what is crystal clear is that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, And as you read on, you see that as he goes out to the Gentiles, to all the Roman world of that time, he suffers greatly for the name of Jesus, just like Jesus said he would. And what we need to do, I think, is praise God that he did. We need to praise God that He sent Saul, that Jesus commissioned him, that he sustained him. Because if he didn't, we would not be here. Most of us here would have no Jewish background. We're here because God chose Saul 
And Jesus sent him to the apostle to the Gentiles like us. Praise God. But the other reason why this verse is significant is because Jesus puts Ananias straight. And you can kind of almost imagine Jesus saying to Ananias, uh, yeah, I, I know who Saul is. <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, God, the Son, kind of all-knowing, all-powerful. I know who, who Saul is. I know he's coming to arrest you. Uh, don't worry. I know who he is, but I've humbled him. I've changed him. So get on with it. Go to him. And again, it's significant that Ananias listens and he does go. Because look at what happens in verse 17 and 18. Look at what happens. Saul hears from Ananias and he regains his sight. And then Saul is filled by the Holy Spirit and then he's baptized. And we're not told, but I assume that Ananias is the one to baptize Saul. See, Saul at this point, through those different events, he becomes the follower of Jesus. And it's really lovely because did God need to use Ananias? No, but he did. And did Luke need to record it for us? Well, not necessarily, but he does. And what a gift that God does give us this word and use Ananias because what I particularly love is what Ananias says when he gets to Saul. See, look at what he says, look what he calls Saul when he gets to him in verse 17. He calls him Brother Saul. And isn't that incredible? Again, just we have to imagine what Saul was like before because that's what Ananias knows. See, it's a massively emotional response. Ananias knows what Saul came to do. And I can imagine Saul hearing those words, Brother Saul, and Saul bawling out his eyes, thinking to himself, but, but I came here to hurt you, Ananias. I came here to arrest you and your family and your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and you call me brother? You're accepting me and you're receiving me, but I came to hurt you. See, it's an incredible moment. But that's the gospel, isn't it? That's what Jesus does to people. That's what Jesus should do to all of us. Change us in that way. And sometimes I wonder if, if us in our, uh, in our sort of churches, if we can be a little, a little bit too much like the reluctant Ananias at times. You know how sometimes we, we say, uh, Christians say of other people, uh, they go, oh, they would make a really nice Christian. You know, we, we know another person, go, That'd be, they're such a lovely person, they'd make a really lovely Christian. And maybe I should make a bigger effort to invite them in my house. And, and maybe I should make an effort to invite them to church, which is great. We should do that. But it's kind of wrong, that thinking, isn't it? If God can save a wretch like Saul, and Ananias can receive a wretch like Saul, God can save anyone, and we should receive anyone. The Christian is one who receives any who calls on the name of Jesus. So I wonder if our churches in Sydney need to be filled that little bit more with forgiven criminals and that little bit more with recovering addicts, with people who aren't seemingly well-to-do and, and middle class, because that's the gospel, isn't it? Ananias, brother Saul, it's such a lovely moment and it teaches us something. To the wretched Saul, Ananias receives. That's the gospel. And so Saul was humbled, but Ananias himself too was changed and he saw the extent of the mercy and grace of God, that it has no bounds, that God is pleased to save even a wretch like Saul. But very briefly, point four, before I wrap things up, Saul transformed. And we can't look at verses 20 to 31 uh, with any sort of detail because we, we, we're out of time. But it's just, it is worth knowing, uh, noting just how quickly Saul's transformed and how incredible it is. And this, 
this section does cover a few years' time, but it is immediate. Look at verse 19. He goes from being the persecutor of Jesus to the preacher of Jesus. Verse 19, immediately he, Saul, began proclaiming Jesus in the Jewish synagogues. And in verse 22, he was confounding the Jews, which again just shows God's sovereign choice of Saul because Saul was well-equipped as a Jew. He'd studied under a, a, a great rabbi called Gamaliel, and so he knew the Old Testament so well, so he was really able to help the other Jews see that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one the Old Testament pointed to. It's Jesus. He's the one. He's the Son of God. And so verse 22, he's, he proves that Jesus is that Old Testament Messiah to the Jews that he, that he uh, converses with. But the persecutor didn't only become the preacher. Saul, the persecutor, also became the persecuted. And this, this is lovely little irony here. So just look at verse 29 for a sec. It's worth noticing. See, in verse 29, Saul was conversing and debating with the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem. So they're, they're the, the Greek-fearing Jews. Uh, and he was, he was in Jerusalem telling them about Jesus. And what did they want to do? They wanted to kill him. They didn't like what he was saying. And do you remember who the last person in Acts was to share Jesus with the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem? It was Stephen. Such an, a lovely but sad irony here. You see, Stephen was stoned. He was killed because he was preaching Jesus to the Hellenistic Jews. And Saul was the one approving it. And now you've got Saul who's there preaching the same Jesus to the same people. Such is the power of the transformation of the gospel. Such is the power of God's spirit as he changes people. And that's what should happen for every believer of Jesus to be transformed like that. But let me wrap up with a few things we learn and some uh, final words mixed in. Uh, I do wonder as we read Acts chapter 9 and really focus in on what Saul was like before, I wonder if, if the grace and mercy of God we see in his chapter makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, what do I mean by that? See, Saul was such a nasty piece of work. He really was. And, and we kind of have to imagine what it was like if we were the church of Saul's day. So imagine now, don't turn around, but imagine now Saul came in the back of our church to ravage this church and raid this church. Imagine if you were at gospel team during the week and uh, someone wasn't there and you found out, oh yeah, Saul came to their house and he's arrested them. The whole family's been taken. Imagine you get home and the neighbor goes, oh, Saul was at your door. Lucky you weren't home because you would have been arrested. See, imagine people sat in prison from our church here because of Saul. And then God chooses to save him and to forgive him and have mercy upon him. I think our gut reaction would be, that's not fair. How could God do that? Doesn't he know what Saul is like? See, if we're honest, part of our initial gut reaction is to think that's not fair. Saul doesn't deserve anywhere near salvation. Our gut reaction is to feel that some injustice has occurred. But there are two things we need to learn about that sort of reaction. The first is we ourselves are absolute wretches like Saul. We are. If we're honest... If we contemplate our sin and are honest before God, we know that we are like Saul. See, part of the problem is sometimes we think, of course it makes sense that God would save me because <laughs> I'm not that bad. Like, I sin, of course, I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm a sinner, but, but 
I know I don't deserve salvation, but I'm not that bad. It makes sense that God would save me. I don't see any injustice there. But no, this makes no sense for God to save a wretch like you, to save a wretch like me. We're as undeserving as Saul. We're as fallen as Saul. I went to a conference a couple of weeks ago, and Philip Jensen was interviewed at the conference. And if you, some of you, many of you will know who Philip Jensen is. Uh, if you don't, he's someone God's used quite powerfully uh, in our Sydney circles for the gospel. And uh, he's in his late 70s now. And, he, and as he was interviewed, he just said, he, asked, you know, he was asked, what's the hardest thing for you, as, you know, in your Christian life? And he just said, the older I get, the more I realize what a wretched man I am. What a great sinner I am. And as he shared that, it, it wasn't kind of a you know, well-meaning, well-prepared theological answer he was giving. You could tell he meant it. You could tell the emotion in it as he reflected on his own sin. He was saying the older he grew, the more he grew in his knowledge of God, the darker his own sin became, the more he realized what a wretch he is. And whilst that scares me a little, because I already know my sin so well, and I'm not anywhere near 70 yet, what Philip said is true. The more you grow as a Christian, the more you realize what a wretch you are. And I know these are not the prettiest of final words. Uh, This is not the sort of stuff you put up on your fridge. But brothers and sisters, do not forget your sin. Do not forget that we, just like Saul, we are so undeserving of the grace of God. You see, before the Lord Jesus brought himself, brought you to himself, all of us, just like Saul, were obsessed and driven and devout rebels before God. What might be a helpful exercise is sometime today or tonight or tomorrow, spend some time remembering just how undeserving we are, that we are like Saul. We don't deserve it any more than he did. Because it's only as we do that that we then understand just how mighty God is to save, how mighty he is to save us. John Newton, who himself was a great wretch, he was a slave trader, before he was saved. And if you don't know who John Newton is, he wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. But in his old age, a bit like Philip, in his old age, he wrote this. He said this. He said, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And you see, those two things go hand in hand. Like Saul, we are great sinners. Like Saul, we have a great Savior. Anyone, even you, even me, can be saved. And as we realize this, that there are two incredible things that happen. I think it makes us more like Ananias. It makes us, it makes us become Ananiases who say, Brother Saul. So we welcome and we receive all sorts of wretches to be part of our church that is full of sinners just like us. And we don't unfairly judge one another. But actually, we, we seek to, to help one another as saved sinners before God. We seek to pray for each other and speak the word of God to each other. You see, this thing that we call church, this family of God that we have, is such a wonderful thing. It's a family that we've been received into and we receive others into. And we call each other brothers and sisters and we help one another. But the second incredible thing is that we're transformed when we realize just how mighty God is in saving us because the apostle Paul was so effective in the purposes of God because he never forgot that he was a great sinner and he never forgot he had a great savior and that drove him and transformed him and that's what will transform us too because Jesus softened your heart and he humbled your proud sin and he saved you to serve him and that's a miracle that God did that for you 
and for me. And so let that truth occupy our mind every minute of every hour of every day. Never forget it, never leave it, that God saved us, even though we were so undeserving. But let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, this uh, part of your word is such an encouragement, but also a heavy word in many ways. Uh, We thank you, Father, that you are pleased to save us, even though we are so undeserving. We thank you that you save wretches, even like Saul, even like us. And we thank you that in the kindness of your salvation plan that you appointed Saul, who is the Apostle Paul, so that we might hear about Jesus and be saved. Help us never to take that for granted. Help us always to be transformed in light of that gospel truth. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.